The book of Exodus in the early portion, if you remember, it deals with the deliverance of the people of Israel out of bondage. Now, you and I are also in need of deliverance out of bondage. We were born in bondage. And God's desire is that He would deliver us. Many times since our salvation, if you're saved, you have found yourself held captive by doubts and fears and disappointments and other difficulties and maybe bringing you to the brink of wanting to give up. And giving up can have different forms and can look uh, like different things and giving up completely throwing in the towel in a physical sense within a, a certain uh, environment, maybe work or relationship or just spiritually, just even on the inside. Exodus chapter 15, where we're going to be tonight, it follows that great chapter in the Bible where Israel had experienced deliverance. After 400 years of bondage in Egypt, they came to this desperation to seek God. God answered their cry and delivered them. Remember, God delivered them from Egypt and then brought them to a great crisis known as the Red Sea. And God wasn't short of miracles there either. He opened the sea and walked across to freedom on dry ground. And so they had tremendous spiritual success. They had great spiritual victory. But it seems like the Israelites in Old Testament times are always having difficulty with water. Even though they were having trouble with the Red Sea, too much water. We find shortly thereafter in chapter number 15, they were having trouble with too little water. Either there was too much or there was not enough. Either way, they could not find what they were looking for in chapter number 15. And there were two million people plus a million in cattle. And so they come in chapter 15 and they're experiencing thirst. That's not a small problem. Again, in chapter 15, they've been delivered from Egypt. They've come through the Red Sea. They're at hallelujah time. They have sung the song of Moses, but just three days after all that, they find themselves in a desert place with no water. Let's stand. Let's read our text tonight. Exodus 15 verses 22 and 23. So Moses brought Israel from the Red Sea and they went out into the wilderness of Shur. And they went three days into the wilderness and found no water. And when they came to Marah, they could not drink of the waters of Marah, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Marah. In chapter 14, they had problems because it was too much water. Here they have problems because there's not enough. I want us to look at this tonight. Thank you. Please be seated. Now just try to imagine, it's easy now to be hard on them and to look at it, but try to put yourself in that situation. Two million people, a million in cattle, and they're anticipating going on for God, but they run into problems that they can't seem to, to figure out. That doesn't make sense. They had wives, they had children, they had grandparents, and all of this was part of the pressure and problem. Yet they had come off an incredible experience, an incredible victory, where God opened the Red Sea, God dried the ground, God destroyed Pharaoh and the Egyptian army, 
And yet their dreams came true, but now they're at a place of disappointment. Now they're at a place of frustration. They find themselves after just three days without any water, two million of them, and the water that they end up finding is bad. It's bitter. And here the people of God express something that they expressed many times. They expressed the idea of giving up. God's people oftentimes in the Old Testament, especially these who came out of Egypt, they gave up in their minds many times. They wanted to give up on their journey. They wanted to give up on that discipleship process of following God. Many times they would look back to Egypt and they would say something like this. Well, you know, it was hard. We were slaves, but it was not nearly as bad as what it is now. And their memory was uh, distorted. And they felt like giving up. Tonight I want to talk to you about this. What do you do when you feel like giving up? What do you do when you feel like giving up? I've said in a few situations where this is the sentiment and, and I thought, well, what do we do when we feel like giving up? And there are a number of questions that I came up with on the what. What do we do in this situation and so we may look at a few others in the weeks to come. What do we do in a particular crisis? But, but what happens when we feel like giving up? Let me give you three, three particular truths I believe we can find right out of here in our passage. Verse 25 tells us, And he, that is Moses, cried unto the Lord. And the Lord showed him a tree, which when he had cast into the waters, the waters were made sweet, there he made for them a statue, an ordinance, and there he proved them. The Bible is telling us that the Lord is the one who's doing the proving ultimately. Proving is testing. Here's the, the first thought tonight. Great success. Remember, they had great success coming out of Egypt, coming across the Red Sea. Great success is often followed by great failure. Great success is often followed by great failure in the spiritual life. It doesn't have to, but it oftentimes does. God here is testing his people. God's testing was to reveal their character. See, God's character is revealed in the big crisis. What are we going to do in Egypt? Uh, not much. Let's see what God can do. What can God do in Egypt? Oh, he can do anything he wants to do. And he brought them out of Egypt. Here we are at the Red Sea. What are we going to do? Oh, not a lot. Well, what can God do? He can do anything and that he did. In the big crisis of life, God's character is revealed. But your character and mine is revealed in the little test of life. The crisis of the Red Sea, the mountains on either side, the Egyptians pursuing down the back of them, the Red Sea in front of them. God showed how powerful he was. Now, 
God's people are in a desert. Their problem is not the same as what it was three days before. They're not about to be killed instantly by a pressing army. Their problem was that they couldn't find anything suitable to drink. And when they did find something to drink, it was bitter. Bitter means unbearably bitter. Would they stop and say, hey, let's think about all that God has done for us. No, they didn't. And there's a number of people who end up giving up on God. Again, they might be sitting in the pew, but they've given up somewhere because they've forgotten what God has done. They forgot how powerful God truly was. Would God's people trust that God could take care of this need of no water just like he did when there was too much water? Well, they could have, but they didn't. Why? Because God tested them and they failed the test. They failed to remember the power of God. If God delivered you out of the hand of Egypt, if God opened up the Red Sea, surely we would think that God can provide water for us. But somehow we think, well, this is different. This is different this time. This one is a little bit different. But what we fail to remember is that our God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Our God changes not. And rather than going from victory to victory, they went from victory to great defeat. See, the people of Israel began to complain. They complained about God. They complained about Moses. They complained about their state. In verse number 23, it tells us, and when they came to Marah, Marah means bitterness. They could not drink of the waters of Mar, for they were bitter. Therefore, the name of it was called Mar. Verse 24, and the people murmured against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? Now, Israel had a common response to every problem that they seemed to face. When things did not go right, they blamed the leader and they complained against God. Now notice, while God showed his power at the Red Sea, when God showed his power at the Red Sea and here at Marah there's bitter water, God could have showed them his power here as well. But he showed Israel instead Instead of showing them his power because they responded wrong, he was really then showing them how lousy they were. He was revealing to them their character because of them, their grumbling against Moses and grumbling against God. Do you know what we grumble about today? We grumble about anything that is distasteful. If it doesn't seem to serve us, they drank the water, it was distasteful, so they complained to Moses, against Moses and they complained to God. When God puts us into a situation and we're disappointed by it, he puts us into a situation, maybe it was once sweet and then it becomes bitter. 
Maybe it was a job situation that was an answer to prayer. It was sweet, but then it becomes bitter. Maybe it was a financial situation or move that was one time sweet, then it becomes sour. Maybe it was a business deal that was once sweet opportunity that then sours. Maybe it was a, a, a moving change that was once a sweet opportunity that then sours. Maybe just life itself goes from being sweet to sour. I hope your response isn't like the children of Israel. We complain, we murmur, we blame. Many times God perhaps, and I really believe it's true, it's doing it here. He's just testing. He, he's, he's testing because he's still equipping because he still has more in store for the people of God. But he knows they can't get out of Egypt until they pass the test. They can't get through the Red Sea until they pass the test. They can't get suitable water until they pass the test. They can't go on into the land of blessing and fruitfulness and fullness until they pass the test. The test of what? The, the test of equipping. The test of being ready for the so much more that God has in store. So great success many times is followed by great failure. And God is showing to his people what they're truly like on the inside. After a sweet victory at the Red Sea, he brings Israel to Marah to drink of bitter waters. And don't think that you and I are exempt from bitter experiences of life, disappointments, when things don't turn out the way we would like for them to turn out. Don't think that we will be spared from that. Being God's child does not immune us from bitter experiences or bitter disappointments. You know, many times we've come to a great spiritual victory. We recognize God did this. God helped me. God was with me. Maybe we we're on a mountaintop experience in our life. Maybe your prayer life was going great. You sensed a nearness to God. You felt God's blessing and hand upon you. And, and following that was some kind of a tremendous disappointment. It's like having a balloon just pumped full of air and somebody taking a pin and popping the balloon. And all of a sudden, it just everything seems to rain on that blessing parade that you were experiencing. And anytime there's great victory, anytime there's a great answer to prayer, there's a great experience with the Lord, or God's really doing something real and great in your life, just know that it's always going to be followed by some kind of a testing, a proving. It doesn't have to be great failure, but great failure often occurs because there's not the right response of faith, trusting and obeying, steadfast and unmovable, not growing weary and well-doing when the testing comes. So God led them tomorrow to put them to the test. I never really cared for tests in school. I especially didn't like the pop quiz. The teacher comes in, everything off your desk, just pencil and paper, and it's designed to catch you by surprise. And it was never really designed to, to prove what you don't know. It was intended to display what you should have known. And God does the same thing. He, he will, in the midst of your, everything's going great because it suits us or it satisfies us. He says, all right, I'm clearing everything off your plate. Pop quiz. 
And what he's trying to find out is, do you really trust me? Do you really love me? Do you really believe me? And so he's putting us to the test. Are you confident that I can take care of you in this situation? So the first thing, and when we're thinking about giving up, is that great success is often followed by great failure in the spiritual life. And that's because of a wrong response of failing to trust and obey. Number two, the second thing is this. Great deliverance is often followed by great forgetfulness. Great deliverance is often followed by great forgetfulness. I'm going to go back up to verse 24. And the people murmured against Moses saying, Moses, watch and see what God will do. Is that what they said? No, it wasn't a statement, or nor was it a declaration, an exclamation of how good God is, how powerful. Moses, don't you remember what God did just three days ago? No, instead it was a question. What are we going to do, Moses? What are you going to do? What can God do? What shall we drink? When we face disappointment, we often forget what God has done for us in the past. Right. Elijah, same way, saw the fire fall on Mount Carmel. He went through a time of, of threatening, despair, uh, desperation, uh, depression. And now he's, he's ready to quit. After great victory is always a great testing. And if we don't respond the way we responded to experience the great victory, it's going to result in great defeat. But we don't have to be defeated after great victory. And number two, great deliverance is often followed by great forgetfulness. Maybe you saw the Lord do something in your life. Maybe God delivered your child. Maybe it was a husband or your wife. Maybe it was a business associate. Maybe it was a ministry context. And, and then and all of a sudden uh, you experienced uh, a, 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 just a change, a reversal. And rather than just having confidence that God can do the same, in this situation we, we, we paralyze. We get paralyzed. We freeze. And, and we just feel like giving up because we feel like, I don't know what God can do. I don't know if he's ever done anything for me. And the truth is, God's delivered us many times. When you feel like giving up, are you, are you remembering what God has done for you in the past? Are you remembering that God has been able to keep his promises? Now, when you have a bitter experience, you know, you're looking for water that satisfies. You're looking for something that, that is good. You're looking for something that refreshes and rejuvenates. And you think, man, if I can just do this, or if I can just have that, or if I can just be here, or if this could happen, then I will be happy. And sure enough, it happens. You get it. You find the blessing. You have the relationship. You get the opportunity. But the Lord says, but I'm going to test you also. 
And when you get that thing or that relationship comes to pass or that blessing comes into your life, a little bit later you run up against a test and we take it as a disappointment. You know, my ship is about to come in, but like the water that they anticipated that would be refreshing and rejuvenating, this, this bad circumstance comes right after it. And what happened is God's people, they, they got what they wanted. They got out of Egypt. They got through the Red Sea. They got what they wanted, but they did not want what they got. Let me say it again. They got what they wanted, but they didn't really want what they got. How do you react when disappointment comes and you want to give up? How do you react whenever the blessing comes, but then there's a, a crisis that comes right after that, and, and we, we fail to remember that God is trying to, to give me more. He's not trying to squash us. He's not trying to, sometimes he might be trying to divert us and, and save us from taking a wrong path, but many times after great blessing, after great, great experience of victory, He's just testing us, proving us, because sometimes we get confident. Look at what I did. God's trying to help us to see, you didn't do anything but get yourself in a mess. I'm the one that's delivering you, and he's trying to test us to show us how great he is, but how weak we are. So let me ask you, how do you respond when disappointment comes? Let me give you some things here in the midst under number two here. I'm going to give you three don'ts and two do's. Two do's. Three don'ts. Number one, when something comes into your life, a problem, something distasteful, mara, bitter, don't curse it. Or don't curse them. If it's people, somebody that offends you, People who disappoint you when relationships go sour on you or when life just crumbles on you, don't curse it. Romans 12, 14 says, bless them which persecute you, bless and curse not. And truly that's hard to do, especially when somebody disappoints you, when a relationship disappoints you, when, when, when someone does you wrong, you want to curse them. You know, Jesus said, bless those who curse you. But don't you curse them. Why? Because he said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, saith the Lord. Do you know what Moses could have said at this point when they complained to Moses and they blamed he and God? He could have said, you guys are going to blame every problem on me. If you're going to, to just complain to me and cry out to me, then forget you. I'm not leading people like this. You can just die in the desert. You can go back to Egypt and you can be slaves. I'm going to go on to the promised land. I don't need two million people that are nothing but a bunch of complainers. He could have cursed the people. But instead, you know what Moses did? He blessed the people. He didn't retaliate. He didn't retaliate against the people. The person who has irritated you at work or let you down at school, who has betrayed you in church, that person who's wronged you, don't curse them. Don't curse the situation. 
God allowed it to happen. God could have prevented it, but He allowed it. You said what they did was sin. God's not the author of sin. He didn't lead them to sin, but He did in His providence and sovereignty and His will for your life allowed you to go through that. So don't curse what God is doing in your life. Number two, don't rehearse it. Number one, don't what? Number one, don't what? Some of you are hanging on to that card. You're wanting to curse. Don't do it. Number two, don't rehearse it. Say that one with me. Don't don't rehearse the bitter experience over and over and over again in your mind because when you do, it just grows and it gets worse. Ephesians 4.26 tells us, don't let the sun go down on your... Yeah. Don't go to bed with anger, resentment against somebody. Don't do that. The only way you can do what, what God is telling us to do is in the power of God. Not the human nature because your human nature doesn't have that kind of power. Human nature says, hang on to it. That person deserves to be wronged by you because that person wronged you. That person deserves to have bad things happen to them because that person was the cause of bad things happening to you. Don't be angry and hang on to it and go to bed with that because what's going to happen is you're going to wake up with it. And our God is a God of faithfulness. Mercies are new every morning. Don't go to bed rehearsing what's been done to you that's wrong that God allowed in your life. God is saying, I don't want you to allow things that happened to you today or yesterday or 20 years ago to be festering in your life, eating away at you like a cancer. So don't, don't number one, what? Don't do what? Curse it, don't, number two, rehearse it. And number three, don't nurse it. Don't nurse it. You know, when it comes to nursing that grudge, if you refuse to let it go, it'll be sure not to let you go. Job 18 and verse four, he says of anger, he teareth himself in his anger. You are only hurting yourself with your anger. But some people take anger like a drug or alcohol intoxicated. It can really fuel them up so that they can really go off on somebody in a very, uh, very fashionable way. And Job says, all you did was hurt yourself. You may have had a bad day, tough week, tough month, tough life. But in Ephesians 4, 26, don't. Let the sun go down on your wrath. And he gives the reason why the next verse, because you'll let the devil have a foothold in your life. Neither give place to the devil. You'll give him foothold in your life. We're talking about spiritual warfare in the other messages. And this is one of the ways the devil can have a foothold. You're just opening up an invitation for him to come. You nurse it when you have your pity party, when you major on how unjust life is. Listen, Two million people could have been in agreement against one Moses and two million people could have said, Moses, we all agree this is bad. This is your fault. God has not come through and changed their theology to fit their circumstances. 
But it doesn't matter how many people agree with you. They're nursing something that God was trying to use in their life for their good. But the devil got, got in and the devil gets into our life and gets a foothold. And that anger and that resentment, it becomes a big cancer. Remember Jesus as our example. First Peter tells, Peter says, he is our example. When he was reviled, he reviled not again. He said, well, that was Jesus. That's why he could do it. That's exactly right. But if you're saved, Jesus lives in you so that you and I can do what our great deliverer tells us we can do. So don't, don't curse the situation. Don't rehearse it. Don't nurse it. Let me give you two things to do. When you face disappointment, you want to give up. Disperse it. Disperse the situation. What does that mean? It means just give it to God. Psalm 55, 22, cast thy burden upon the Lord and he shall sustain thee. We sing the song, uh, I don't even know if we sing the song, but the song that uh, says, leave it there, take your burdens to the Lord and leave it there. Well, a lot of people do that. But the problem is, is when you pick it up and take it back with you. And God says, disperse it. In verse number 25, what does Moses do when the people come complaining to him? And he cried back at the people. No, he cried unto the Lord. And the Lord showed him a tree. As he say to the people, hey, listen, I am the leader and that means I'm always right. <laughs> no. Did he say, I'm smarter than you and I have the answer? No. No. Moses cried out to the Lord. Don't cry out against the person that hurt you. Cry out to the Lord. The the. The Lord did something that Moses was in desperate need of. It says the Lord showed him a branch, a, a piece of wood. He, he threw in this water, this piece of wood. And what happens? Well, look at it in verse 25. He cried unto the Lord. The Lord showed him a tree, which when he cast it into the waters, the waters were made sweet. And there he made for them a statue and ordinance, and there he proved them. See, Moses didn't write a letter to the editor. He didn't go to social media and say, I want to I say something and, and everyone else knows he's saying something without saying something. So what is he really saying? Oh, let me see. Who is his family? Or who, 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 where does he go to church? And, and, they, and you've given enough information to let people know. And yet you follow up with, I just want you to pray. No, you don't really want them to just pray. If that's what you wanted, you would have just prayed. Moses didn't say, I'm just so upset by this. No, he didn't defend himself. I think that is strange because most in leadership, most of us, when we're attacked, it's just a reaction. We want to defend ourselves. Or if you're a spouse and your spouse is attacked, the first thing you want to do is defend. I think it was a great help being reminded over and over while in Bible college by Dr. Comfort and Dr. Childs reminding us that God is quite capable of defending us. We don't have to do that. That's not my job. That's not my calling. He called me to trust and obey. Let God do the defending. Moses did not do that. He, but he gave his disappointment to the Lord and the Lord showed him what to do. Disperse whatever you're facing. 
give it to God. But a second thing to do is let God reverse it. Don't manufacture your own miracles. Don't manufacture your own answers. Let God reverse it. Did you know that God can take bitterness and make it sweet? You know what I think the Lord was giving to Moses? You know, Moses was a prophet of God and, and God said, Moses, here's a tree. Throw this tree in the water of bitterness and it will become sweet. You know what I think God was showing Moses? I think he was showing him a picture of Calvary, picture of the cross. You think Moses believed in Jesus? I certainly do. Just like Abraham, he knew that he was coming. We look back at the one who came. Moses was looking at the one who was already alive. He had just not had a physical birth and he knew that what would one day take place. And I think God was showing him the power and picture of Calvary. Do you know what God's solution is for our bitterness? It's still a piece of wood. It's a piece of wood that the one whose name was Jesus was crucified on. That's the answer to all of life's problems. When you disperse your bitterness, when you want to give up and give your disappointment to God, God is ready to apply the power of the cross and the blood of Jesus Christ to your problem. See, one of my great problems for many years in the infancy of my Christianity, even in ministry, spiritual immaturity does not, is not determined by how many years or how short of a time you've been saved. It is determined by your, your, the depth of your walk with God. And many times in people's spiritual infancy, like in mine, I looked at the cross as simply a past tense experience. But if you only look at it as that which brings salvation to one's life from sin and hell, and you don't see it as a present reality, you're missing out on one of the great factors that can take a bitter situation and turn it into sweetness. You said you have a verse for that? Sure do. We've looked at it recently on a Sunday morning. It's Galatians 2 and verse 20. Paul says, I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth, literally lives in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, bitterness, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me, sweetness, and gave himself for me. You know, that piece of wood had been there all along. They just didn't see it. The piece of wood or the tree that made the water sweet was there all along. And that answer to our problem that we're looking for is there all along because the answer is found in God. And he's promised to never leave us nor forsake us. And as believers, we know the spiritual principles and we know the key is to apply those. But if we don't remember the power of the cross and allow the cross, that crucified life, to become a reality we're going to remain in a bitter situation when all God wants to do is to show us his mighty power and make it sweet. If you're crucified, do you know you cannot have anger? Let 
Some have been living in bitterness for too many. I get so tired of hearing people blame former pastors for why they are the way they are. You are the way you are because you've chosen to be that way. I get so weary. You don't know how people have, you don't know what you have done. You don't know. Do you not know the God that can take your bitter situation and make it sweet? The fact is, if you were living the crucified life, the not I, but Christ's life, you wouldn't be bitter. I will say it again. You wouldn't be bitter. Some of you have lived with bitterness longer than you've lived with God's blessing. That's why you haven't been to an altar. I told Brother Cherry, sound booth has got to change up. Camera people have got to change up. Piano people have got I don't want anything to keep people from experiencing walking there. I don't want somebody messing with the camera back there who won't trust God and believe God and let God take the bitterness and put in the blessing of the sweet water of life that comes by the cross. Amen. Amen. I'm not done yet. If you're crucified, you're dead. You're dead to the sin that you've been toying with. You're not going to have, you, are, you can't, it is impossible to be filled with, re, to, let me say it, it is impossible to have resentment if you're crucified with Christ. It's impossible. Impossible. So, what's the excuse? You're nursing. You're hurt and sin that Christ died to deliver you from. If a man's crucified, do you know he cannot get angry? He can't pooch his lip out. It might be swollen, but he can't pooch it out anymore because of anger. No, he can't. He's dead. He is flat out dead. He's dead to insult. He's dead to hurt. He's dead. You don't want to be dead to sin? You want to be alive to sin? If you're alive to sin, you're dead to God. And no wonder our homes are filled with deadness. No wonder we have churches filled with deadness. No wonder there is so much immorality and filth and layers of it. And it's in nooks and crannies. And when I hear pastors who will defend and explain why they have immorality, why they have deacons that are still deacons who are filled with immorality, why pastors are still preaching who are filled with immorality. And the same when I hear homes, head of homes, explain why it's not a big deal deal. We're not dealing with this all the way. We deal with it the way we want to deal with it. It's because you're dead to God, but you sure are alive to sin. And you can count on the fact you will always experience bitterness everywhere. The waters will always be bitter until you get the cross. And the Bible tells us there's a principle. When you give your life to Jesus, you die to yourself. You die to yourself. You die to self. Have you ever heard this before? I think it was maybe Muhammad that may have said this. Deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me. No, no, that, that was Jesus, wasn't it? But that ain't what we want. 
It's just, we, we just, we don't want that. We, we, we know how to do church. We know how to do me. We know how to do, we know, we know. But when you give your life to Jesus, you're going to die to self. What does that mean? Your ambitions, self-effort, anger, old life. The funny thing about this is that you have to apply truth. You have to take steps of faith and obedience. You have to get radical. Unfortunately, too many times people get radical only when they're in the hot seat and it's really bad. That's what God's people did. We're in Egypt. We got to get out. Of, we need help. We need help. Let's have a prayer meeting. Let's cry out to God. Moses steps in. We'll follow Moses and... God brings them out, brings them to the Red Sea. They panic again. We don't like this. What are we going to do? God comes through again. Three days later, they come to bat. I mean, situation changes, but it's the same idea. God hasn't changed. The people's heart, they're still immature, and God is trying to help them to see God can come through in any situation if you'll but trust and obey. But it takes something for someone to say, I, I've tried everything else. We've, we've tried kicking out Moses. We've tried cursing God. We've tried doing that. We, we've tried everything. Maybe now we'll, we'll, we'll try God. The problem is self, self, self. And God is saying to Moses, your solution is right there. It's right by that blue water. There's a tree. Take it. Put it in the water. It'll make the water sweet. You know, Calvary was bitter. The only perfect man who ever lived died upon that bitter cross. And out of that bitter situation came the sweetness of the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Can any good come out of a divorce? Yes. If you put the cross in it. Can any good come out of a loved one's painful, excruciating death? If you put the cross in it. Can any good come out of the loss of a job or the loss of a home or the other disappointments in life? If you put the cross in it. Jesus is in the business of taking the power of the cross and turning bitter things into sweetness. And God gives us the power to do that. But don't forget what God has done and don't forget what God has promised. Don't be forgetful. And let me give you this last one. I got to get done. Number three. Great shortages in life. This was a shortage to them, a great failure. Great shortages, disappointments. Great shortages in life are often followed by fullness. Fullness. Great shortages in life are often followed by fullness. Look at verse 27. And they came to Elam. Where were 12 wells of water and three score and ten palm trees, and they encamped there by the waters. Great shortages in life are often followed by good news, fullness. They're on the brink of starvation because there's no water in the desert. But then they come to Elam. 12 wells of water, three squirt, 70 palm trees. It was a tremendous oasis. You know how far Elam is from Mara? 
just five miles away. But they didn't know it. But do you know what they were talking about doing? Going all the way back to Egypt. When just five miles away. One of the things that the devil does as soon as he can is to get us to a point and he coerces us and influences us giving up by convincing us you can't go another step. You can't make it another service. You can't go another mile. You might as well give up. You're never going to make it. It does not pay to serve God. He's not going to answer you. He doesn't care about you. And you want to give up on a hard situation in your life. You want to give up on church. You want to give up on prayer. You want to give up on your marriage. You want to give up on a relationship. But remember, Elam was just five miles, five short miles down the road. I've seen God work in the lives of people so that their attention would be focused on Him as their source in what looked like an impossible situation, hopeless, dismal, discouraging. But in a very short time, just right down the road in their life, God would open up an oasis and totally turn a situation bitter completely around to something sweet. You may remember years ago, there was a plane crash in the mountains and people who did survive, they were stranded alone in the high mountain, frozen area, lots of snow, no communication whatsoever. And for some period of time, those survivors, in order to survive themselves, they resorted to cannibalism to eat the flesh of those who did not survive. When they were finally rescued, they discovered that they had crashed only six miles from a resort where there was food and warmth and shelter. They just didn't know it. We don't know, always know how close our deliverance is. Sometimes we're like John the Baptist in the dungeon of doubt. Did we do the right thing? Was he really worth it? Is this the right course? Hey, John the Baptist may have lost his head, but he kept God's favor. You don't know how close you are to deliverance. It doesn't matter how bad your circumstance might be. Just keep on serving God. Keep on believing God. Sometimes the Lord lets these things happen so we'll focus on Him as our only source. And sometimes we don't recognize that He's all that we need until we recognize He's all that we have. And God's going to test us to see if we're walking through our difficulty by feelings or by faith. Now, sometimes we just feel spiritual, don't we? Sometimes we just feel close to God. And, I, and I'm glad for feeling that way. Sometimes we just feel God is there. Sometimes we feel God is not there. I say to you, and I'll keep saying as long as God gives me breath, stop letting your feelings dictate what you do. Feelings are great indicators. They're, they are terrible dictators. They may indicate something's going on, but they should not be the ones calling the shots. God is there all the time whether you feel Him or not. God is still God whether you feel it or not. Some of the greatest events in this world, some of the greatest accomplishments, greatest of God's people, they were great because the situation, the people, the event was determined not based on how they felt, 
but based upon the truth and faithfulness of God and His Word. If I'm committed to God, it means I don't have to give up. Rather, I can apply the blood of Jesus, the power of the cross, and apply faith and submission to God. And as long as He never gives up on me and He won't, there's never reason I should give up on Him. Let's stand together, please.